This is an ABC podcast. I'm trying to flush the heroin down the loo. He's saying, open, open the, the door. door, open the door. And I was in a minute, in open a minute. Open the door. And I'm just flushing it. And they kick the door down and sort of grab me and hold me down. And one of the older cop drug squad looks at me and he goes, in an emotional way, you're the same age as my daughter. I'm Elizabeth Coolass. Welcome to Days Like These. When the drug squad gate crashed the party at Jane Rose London Share House in 1976, she's 21 years old and she swears her heroin habit is under control. But in truth, she's addicted, constantly preoccupied with chasing the impossible bliss of her first high. And getting beyond that intense struggle, it will come to define the rest of Jane's life and her work. It's a story that begins half a world away from where it will end up, and it starts when Jane is a high school student in a posh boarding school outside London. A friend of mine had sent me a nice block of hash and I didn't really know how much you take of this. I say to a couple of my friends, let's go out into the grounds and eat this. We divided it by four and were very, very ill. It was a fairly renowned school because Princess Anne had gone there, so it was going to cause a huge scandal and I was in a lot of trouble and it was going to be in the newspapers. I would need to tell my father when he came home that I'm now suspended from school. I hear the car come home, Dad's walking in, Mum goes, Jane has got something to tell you. And he looks at me and I go, Dad, I've been suspended for pot. And Dad looks at me and he thinks for a minute and he says, we used to get our kicks out of letting the vicar's tars down. I guess things have changed. Jane's school is strict, but her parents are more hands-off and they're not too fussed about her youthful indiscretions. And their laissez-faire approach, it extends to Jane's career prospects. I was never told about working. It was always, Janie, you're good at school. Now we'll get you into secretarial college. You're going to get married. You're never going to need to work. So I never thought about a career. I couldn't wait to get to London. And I just want excitement. I just wanted music. I wanted to be irresponsible. I was mixing or meeting musicians and we weren't frightened of drugs. The filth and the fury of punk has been unleashed on London. Bands like the Sex Pistols and The Clash, they're rattling around the city and they're rattling the establishment. Jane becomes a face in the scene. She's partying hard and occasionally she's turning up to secretarial school. And then she hears about an opening at a plucky startup, co-founded by a savvy entrepreneur named Richard Branson. A friend of mine's cousin told me there was a new company starting, a record company, and they could get me an interview. The next thing is I'm standing in this amazing warehouse 
in Portobello Road. And it's the office of Nick Powell and Richard Branson, who have just started this company called Virgin Records. Downstairs, I can see shelves and shelves of albums. The guys working there are just great and having a good time. I go upstairs and I'm in an office. I'm introduced to Richard and Richard looks at me and he says, what's your name? And, and I say, Jane. And he says, what's your star sign? I said, I'm an Aquarian. And he looked at me and said, she's got the job. So to land a job on just a name and a star sign, I'm in. Virgin Records was about to really break through. I was just at the absolute coalface of new artists, new music, what was happening. We'd be listening to it. It was a complete dream job. I was still at Virgin when the Sex Pistols signed up. No other company would touch them. They were lewd, rude, absolutely shocked the establishment to its core. They come in, say hello to us, hang over our old typewriters. Sid would, you know, say to me, oh, I'll swap you a couple of mescaline tabs for this. It was larking around. When Jane says that she was larking around with Sid, it's Sid Vicious that she's talking about, the late punk icon, as notorious for his appetite for destruction as for his music. And as Jane swaps psychedelics with a sex pistol and starts day-tripping to Amsterdam, drugs become a mainstay of her life. There were always drugs around. I'd try anything. Acid was big then. So a lot of weekends tripping, and then you would get into work. I would get my hash off this dealer friend of mine, and he was always very protective of me. But I remember just begging him for a line of heroin, and he'd always, always said, no, 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 there's no way you're ever going to... I'll give you a hash, that's all. And I can't remember the whys or whatever, but I remember... He said, OK, I'll give you a line and never ask me again. And I had a line and it just quelled every bit of angst. Heroin made me feel at peace. It was like being wrapped in a warm blanket. I would take it when I could, I wasn't taking it every day, it wasn't interfering with my work, but I want it and I'm taking it, whether it's twice a week, three times a week. But that's the time when it is escalating. I'm feeling quite unwell if I haven't had some. I'm trying to stay on top of my work, but things are out of control. I'm sick in the day if I don't have it. I can't go and visit my mum for the weekend if I don't have enough to keep me well over the weekend. I know I'm in trouble. 
my liberation's gone. I can't go away unless I know that I've got heroin with me or there'll be someone that will have it. So I know I'm in trouble, but I'm going to give this up. I'm just going to have this one last hit. I can't really remember the middle bit. I can remember when it really got out of control, when it was apparent, and I can remember those early days of having a line when I could or friends wanting some and we would buy some together and have it at the weekends. But that point from feeling you've got it under some control to that feeling that I'm way out of control, I can't remember that bit too vividly. Jane's parents become increasingly aware of her addiction and they intervene, sending her to rehab. There, she's put on a prescription drug, methadone, to help wean her off the heroin. There are difficult moments, but Jane does stick to the program with the support of her family. And to reward her efforts, her brother invites her to join him in the Italian Alps to clear her head. Fortified by a heavy methadone prescription, Jane takes him up on the offer. And just as she's about to return home, she's hooked once again. But this time, it's on a young Aussie bloke who she meets in a bar. And right from the start, Jane's in deep. And she knows she needs to see him again. I go back to England and I'm keeping in touch with him. And I go, yeah, I'm just going to buy a one-way ticket. I'm coming back. I come to see my doctor. I go, stop the methadone. She goes, you're on such a high dose. You can't just jump off. And I go, I'm going to. And I did. You know, when you give up drugs on the lifestyle and all the bullshit that goes with it, it leaves a real void. And I filled that void with adventure. I was excited. I really liked this man. So the withdrawals really weren't that bad because it filled that emptiness in me. Wanderlust fills that heroin-sized hole in Jane's life. And she and her new boyfriend, they arrive in Victoria in 1979. Having gone cold turkey, Jane stays the course, she stays clean, and she marries, has a baby, then another, builds a new sober life for herself. And that new life is removed from the record industry that she'd left, but music is still in her veins. And Jane finds that she starts gravitating toward musicians. Roland S. Howard, Spencer P. Jones, all these local heroes who lived in the Melbourne seaside suburb of St Kilda. St Kilda is... You've got so many different extremes of life. The affluent, you've got the people that are already struggling, rambling old houses, the seediness, you've got the music. It's like... Everything of London (laughs) crammed into this one, two square miles. It's just very reminiscent and comforting to me. Equally, it's an area that I know, hey, don't get ambivalent here, because if you ever wanted to go back on drugs, this is where you could get them very easily. After eight years of marriage, Jane's relationship breaks down. There's no chance she's going to be pulled into St Kilda's drug scene, and she's not going to return to London either. 
She is faced with a new beginning, though. It's 1988. She has two young kids to feed. The rest of her life in front of her. She needs to work. And she's faced with a new challenge. What exactly is she qualified to do? I'm thinking about what am I going to do now? What can I do now? I know no one's going to want me as a secretary. I know that to work behind a desk nine to five would just kill me. I love people. And the only thing I was qualified in was addiction. Jane applies to work with the St Kilda Recovery Centre, Widana, an Aboriginal word meaning which way. She's hired, and for the next 10 years, she throws herself into the work, retraining as a drug and alcohol counsellor. And she soon finds that many of her clients are part of St Kilda's music scene. These are her people, this is her world. Jane can relate to it all. But it's one that she can't get too close to, either. When you make that decision of being a counsellor, you've got to be very careful not to become what I would call the wounded healer. I think you have to work in an area where you have huge compassion and empathy, but you equally understand it and know that you can't necessarily change someone's life. You can give them the support and you're not going to go home every night and have no sleep. I knew I could have the empathy. I've been there. I knew I could do that. Over the past year, police and drug agencies have been watching the statistics with alarm. In 1998, Victoria recorded its highest number of fatal overdoses. So far this year, two people have died every day. Now, police are warning users not to watch out for the law, but to use heroin carefully. We certainly urge users to take precautions such as using in company or any other precaution that may save a life. We're at a time in Melbourne where the heroin fatality is overtaking the road fatality. And every day, people are coming to see me and going, Jane, you know, we need a bed now, we're in trouble. And there weren't enough beds. One particular day, there were four people I saw throughout that morning and they'd been on the list for a a long time. There still weren't beds available and One of them said to me, well, Jane, we're just sick of this. We're going to go out tonight and get stoned. I said, I obviously can't stop you doing that, but there's really strong heroin out on the street at the moment. And those who are dying are those who are using by themselves. You have to stick together, the four of you, as a group. I get to work the next morning to be told... Yes, they had all gone out and got stoned, and all four had passed out. Two had been revived, and the two who didn't were the young mums who I'd seen the day before, and they had died. I felt completely redundant as a counsellor. The meaningless and pointless loss of life when there shouldn't have been and needn't have been and with drug laws the way they are and with no beds for people that are in crisis. What more could we do in our roles to prevent people dying?
I'm at the funeral and I'm seeing her son with these two workers on either side. And the service is impersonal. It's going through the motions. At the end of the service, the coffin starts being lowered down and her little son runs towards the coffin, crying, where are you putting my mummy? Where are you putting my mummy? And the workers pull him back and walk him away. And I'm feeling absolutely devastated. A child who has no real understanding of where mummy is, the permanence of the situation. And she's the only one who's been in his life. She loved him. She did her best as a mother. And he is now this frightened child being taken away from this funeral. Where is this little child gonna be sleeping tonight? He's gonna have no one to talk about mum. He's gonna be with people who didn't know mum. I can't even begin to imagine the pain and fear of a child suddenly being completely alone in this world with that depth of trauma and grief. Why are we not working with these children? This child that I just witnessed, if you're having to deal with such a deep sense of disconnection, trauma and grief, of course you're gonna use drugs later. Of course you're gonna self-harm. Of course you're more likely to attempt suicide. So the light went on in a burning way. Why are we putting all our focus on people in the grips of addiction? We need to reach these children now. We need to be with them now. I don't get much sleep that night holding that visual of that funeral. And I'm lying awake thinking, we've just got to raise awareness, just got to get it in the paper. People have just got to think about what happens to the kids. And I also want to raise enough money to get Christmas presents for these children. A small gesture that will say to these children, you're not forgotten. Mum's not here to give you a gift. But we as a community, or there are people out there that are thinking of you. And I wake up the next morning and I just know we're not going to sit on street corners doing a raffle. Benefit. Got to do a benefit concert. With the humble goal of buying Christmas presents, Jane reaches out to some friends and some contacts. If it's going to be music that makes this happen, she'll need the help of rock and roll royalty. I know a lot of musicians... And I just know immediately that they get addiction more than anyone else. Musicians had the understanding, they'd lived it, they all knew people who had died and left children. They were just the immediate demograph that I knew were going to totally be there from the start. Spencer P. Jones! A word from the host... Through guitar notes we want only. Spencer! Woo-hoo! My first phone call is to 
Spencer Jones, very dear friend, he is in. Roland Howard, very dear friend, he is in. Between Roland and Spencer and myself, we had a two-night benefit concert with Paul Kelly, Renee Gaya. We got Pete Garrett, who's going to MC the whole event. Deborah Conway, the Avalanches, Archie Roach, Jimmy Barnes. The list just goes on and on. Got the names locked in. And now we need to find a venue. Well, it's got to be in St Kilda. And if it's going to be in St Kilda, it's got to be the Prince of Wales. My name is Jason Evans, and I'm here to uh, welcome you, I guess, to the uh, Mirabal, lovely, wonderful event that we're doing here at the uh, Prince of Wales. What's the word I'm looking for for all these cameras? Uh, just by you guys being here, it shows that Melbourne is the rock capital of the world, that we can have events like this to benefit the community. I hadn't thought what that might lead to. I just wanted to do these two nights and make it something remarkable for those that were involved. And it did feel remarkable. Ladies and gentlemen, our very special guests, please welcome to the stage something I never thought I'd have the pleasure of saying, Cold Chisel. Here's the fallback. A little bit of fallback. Yeah, thank you very much. There were a lot of emotions that night, but it was electric and there was a buzz and it felt like this is the start of something. I just don't know what. All right. Well, that brings to a close 48 hours of uh, weirdness and some very great rock and roll. You've been sensational and uh, take care. You've given your money to a great cause. Peace. Those two nights at the Prince of Wales, they'll deliver more than just Christmas presents. They mark the beginnings of the Mirabelle Foundation a charity that now supports thousands of kids orphaned through drug abuse across Victoria and New South Wales. The foundation focuses on early intervention and on supporting a child and their family unit through things like family camps, education and carer support. And Jane, all these years later, is just as focused and committed as she was at the very beginning. I think we learn so much just through osmosis without even realising, and I can think back to my childhood, which was privileged but dysfunctional in many ways. But there was always huge compassion in my family. I just absorbed that and I understood that. And that gave me the experience and understanding of addiction. The understanding of the vulnerability of children. I never ever lose that empathy for what it must feel like for a child in a situation like this. That feeling of utter abandonment. I think it's up to us to address that because a child cannot address that. And I remember a very young boy whose mum had died tragically. He'd actually found mum. He had a wonderful relationship with his nan and she didn't have much money at all, which was never going to stop her from raising this child. He was so frightened that he would be removed from her as well, that there would be just another sense of loss and unknown. On the second day when he was staying with her, he said, Nan, I'll be really good and I can go without food for days. 
There are countless quotes from children who are so desperate to be loved, to know what bed they're going to wake up in the next day. And I know there's great tragedies happening on our own doorstep and globally, but we need to be able not to get overwhelmed and address the fundamentals, which is every child needs a sense of love, belonging and hope for them to grow into young adults. And if they don't have immediate family to provide that, who the hell is going to do that? To find out more about the Mirabelle Foundation, head to mirabellefoundation.org.au. That story was reported by the wonderful Sam Weeks. Thanks, Sam. Thanks so much for listening to Days Like These. We love getting your messages and your notes, your story ideas, all of it. If you've got something to share with us, send us an email or a voice memo. Our email, dayslikethese at abc.net.au. And if you haven't already, please follow Days Like These on the ABC Listen app or your favourite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. And if you've got a spare minute, leave us a rating and a review there as well. We love to hear what you think. Days Like These is hosted by me, Elizabeth Coolass. Our lead reporter is Pat Abud. This episode was reported by Sam Wicks and engineered by Simon Branthwaite. The supervising producer was Justine Kelly. And our Series 4 executive producers are Rachel Fountain, Sophie Townsend and Ian Walker. Our theme song is Yeah Nah by the Gooch Palms, courtesy of Ratbag Records and BMG. See you next time.